we still say it to each other, to employees, you know, join our firm and we'll take care of your career for the rest of your life. We're lying when we say that. And it's been a lie for a really long time. And then employees come in and go, will you take care of me? You know, I'm expecting you to take care of my career for the rest of my life. And they're, they're foolish for having that expectation. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today I'm talking to Patty McCord. Eight years ago, Patty left Netflix, but for the 14 years before that, She was Netflix's chief talent officer, and she is the co-author with Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, of the infamous Culture Deck. And she tells the story of how Reed had met the founder of SlideShare and posted posted the Culture Deck on SlideShare as one of the first documents up there. And it might still be one of the most viewed documents on the platform, which is now part part of LinkedIn. So we have a chat about some of the elements of the culture deck. We're talking about A players and how to hire them and and how philosophically Patty thinks that people should approach how to hire and build teams, uh, what the main job of a team leader or a manager is, and how to exit staff from an organization with dignity and fairness. So an absolutely fantastic conversation with Patty. I enjoyed it immensely, and I'm sure you will as well. Hi, I'm Patty McCord. I'm here in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, where did you used to work? Oh, I've worked in a lot of different tech companies all around the Silicon Valley, but I'm probably most well known for the work that I did at Netflix. I was there for 14 years. And you're um, infamous, famous, you know, the Netflix culture deck that you wrote that, you know, millions of people, uh, me included, have have downloaded and poured over. When you think back at Netflix, is that is that a good thing to be remembered for or...? Have you got other things in your sort of top five that that you remember? Well, that's a pretty great thing to be remembered for, but I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit and tell you the truth about it. It was a document that we wrote to help with onboarding. And so it was a slide deck that we wrote. If you go back and read it again, read it as if it's chapters. Because we wrote, we'd write it down, we'd try and figure out if we could do it, we'd have a different kind of workforce, we'd try something new. So the document we wrote, usually what would happen is Reed and I, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, and I would get together and we'd brainstorm it. He'd usually write the first draft and we'd take it, then we'd take it to our executive team, then we'd roll it out to the rest of the managers and the entire company. And so we wrote chapter after chapter after chapter. Everybody collectively contributed to it. Anybody could add it or suggest changes to it. And it took 10 years to write. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Reed one time, I'm like, God, how many hours do you think you and I have put into this? And he's like, you and me. I mean, if you count everybody who's contributed, it's probably thousands and thousands of hours. So, so the true story is Reed and I were driving to work one day. We carpooled together. And he said, I met this woman last night who has the coolest little company. They're going to do share PowerPoint slides on the internet. And I said, that is a great idea. I wish I had thought of that. I wonder what people are going to put out there. And he said, I put the deck out last night. This is the true story of the infamous culture deck. And I freaked out. I said, are you crazy? Oh my God, Reed, I can't believe you did that. He said, why? And I said, oh God, it's the ugliest document known to humankind. <laughs> I mean, the little arrows and the, I'm not even sure we use the same font, you know, one section to the next. And he's like, you never told me it was ugly. I'm like, well, I know, but it is. <laughs> and secondly, I said, you're going to scare away all of our candidates. And he said, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> and the, the best thing about the, 
culture deck for us at the time. Because remember, we did not ever, ever intend it to be a treatise on how you should run your business. It was absolutely a document that was for our employees and our potential employees to say, here's the way we work. And so it changed the way we interviewed the next day. Well, people turned up and they were forearmed, forewarned. Yeah, and they ha- and then we started asking questions and talking about things that you don't normally talk about in an interview. I mean, I could then say to you, Dominique, who's the best boss you've ever had? Why do you, why did that work for you? And you know, when did, how, when have you done your best work? And tell me about how often you deliver, right? Tell me about results. Tell me about so we could then just and people would say, does no time off? Does that mean we don't get time off? <laughs> how does that work? I remember interviewing an engineer, a brilliant guy from Apple, and he said. Um, so at Netflix, we had a no paid time off policy, right? So you could take whatever you want. Unlimited vacation. Unlimited vacation. So he says, you know, uh, I recently got married. Congratulations. And I've had my first child. Again, congratulations. And I'm kind of a workaholic, okay? And if I don't have a vacation policy, I'm worried I'll I'm like be a bad husband. <laughs> like, so first of all, that's not really my problem. <laughs> that one belongs to you. But you know, if the structure helps you, then you should probably stay at Apple. It's a great company. How did it or how does it work in practice? What are the things you have to put in place? Because I've had similar issues with organizations and people asking me similar questions. So it'd be great. I know people will be listening to this or be thinking, how does that work? You have to have really solid management at the local level. You know, my experience is the thing about these broad global corporate initiative issues, (laughs) you know, when you have one broad policy for the entire company all over the world, then you spend half your time making exceptions to it. Right. And so I just figured, why don't we make spend half the time just letting it go and then the other half the time trying to figure it out. So what I mean is, you know, if you're in a part of the organization where you have to show up, you know, particularly hourly workers, then you have to have schedules and, you know, resources have to be in the right place at the right time. So you have to work on that. But you have to be able to really, really clearly explain your deliverables. And the beautiful thing about it is that you add to KPIs, you called them earlier, you add to that, um, that metric time. And so a lot of times people are measured, you know, are, they're saying, you know, someday we're going to be, we're going to accomplish this, you know, someday we'll do this. And half the members of your team think it's next Thursday and the other half think it's next year. Right. (laughs) So the thing about managing time is that you now put time into the equation. You know, we're looking at achieving this by the end of the summer. We're talking July. And so let's take July and work backwards and figure out what we need to do and what our timeline is going to be and what each of us needs to accomplish. And then you can take that and say, hey, by the way, you know, I was planning to travel for a month in May. (laughs) And then you figure that out. Right. But it's not you have to go to HR and ask permission to take a month off in May. You figure it out in your organization and we measure what's getting done in the teams. And my experience with it is that whenever I've looked at teams deliverables and said, man, these guys are just constantly either overcommitting and underperforming or they're not estimating well because stuff is never getting done on time. You know, when I dig into what's happening at the team level, it's not very often about whether or not they come to work on time, right? I mean, I thought about it. It's like, have I ever terminated a salaried employee for being tardy or absent? No. (laughs) And in fact, sometimes, you know, those people that work all the time, they're just weird. (laughs) you know those are the people where you want to go get a pet seriously you know round out your life so you're coming to work as an adult so and I found that some people got a ton of work done without any distractions yeah but one of the things you said there is uh is about being an adult so one of the things that you uh that you said to me earlier is you know that the trick was to hire adults how do you define that? What did you, what did you go, what did you go looking for? Cause certainly if you want 
if you hire children, they will sit there and ask you to tell them when they're allowed to go to the toilet. Uh, they'll, they'll put their hands up in class and, and ask ask your permission, but that's not what you want. So how do you... Or they'll be really good children and sit there quietly and smile and wait for you to tell them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll be nice folks, but they won't take any initiative, right? Yeah. You, and you'd get no surprising innovation from that group of lovely people. Yeah. Uh, because It's a bigger... It's a more holistic thing, but it starts with the idea that people are adults and that they're smart, right? And so what I mean by that is people who have demonstrated the ability to make a commitment and follow through. I mean, that's sort of baseline 101 for adult behavior. And the other one is just not to understand the difference between childish office politicking and actually having, you know, real conversations with people. And so I think, you know, I hear, here's an anecdotal story. You remember the Google guy that wrote the treatise about um, how women weren't capable of being engineers? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So some, so, uh, some reporter called me and said, you know, would you have fired him? And I said, yeah, in a hot minute. I mean, <laughs> what a stupid thing to do. I mean, that just shows incredibly poor judgment. But I said, you know, I think I wouldn't have hired him. And they said, why not? I'm like, you think he wasn't a little twit in the interview? <laughs> you know, if that's your worldview, you know, it leaks out all over the place. I, I mean, I it absolutely would, because I interviewed a million engineers in my life. He absolutely would have said something insulting to me. Uh, because I would have been the HR person in the interview. Well, and or his team. I mean, or within a week, the first week in his team, he'd have said something. He'd have said something strange. Yeah, because he felt confident to do it to the entire workforce and the entire world. So, you know, so I, so I think that it's not as hard as you think. Here's another thing: is sometimes when I, um, when I talk to like human resources conventions or groups of people, I say, look, what I want you to do tomorrow is I want you to go to the front door of your office and I want you to stand there as everybody comes to work for maybe a half an hour and look every person in the eye and go, they might sue me, they might sue me, they might sue me, they might cheat, they might, like, they won't. You know, we've got, we've created these huge systems to punish the whatever, 4% or something like that, instead of creating system, taking away structure. You know, I say at the beginning of my talk a lot that the word I hate most management speak is empowerment. Because you know why we have to go around empowering everybody? Because we took it all away, right? I mean, people have power. It's all the stuff that it's all those tiny little, you've got to ask permission, you've got to get approval, you have to follow the policy, you know, you can't do that on your own, you can't make that decision. That's what takes it all away. Now, we don't have magic wands to empower people. But it starts at school, doesn't it? You know, that whole, you know, we, you're at school for a long part of your life, formative part of your life, and, and there isn't much room for not following the rules. And then people go often go and work in big companies and, you know, that sort of following the rules is, you know, it's just if you don't follow the rules, you can't get on. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm so lucky because I've spent a bunch of my time in startup organizations. And the thing about creating something that nobody's ever created before, like we did at Netflix, was when there's no right answer, there's no right rules right? So that I believe that historically that transition from the authoritarian sort of Western society school model to the corporate, you know, hierarchical management model was mostly around the manufacturing revolution, right? And so now things just move too fast. I get called all the time, you know, can you come help my 150,000 person corporation bank be more innovative. And, you know, the issue is the fat middle. It's not the top and it's not the bottom. It's the people in the middle who got promoted for doing things the way we always have. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you, do you go and help them or do you just say, not my bag? Most often I say not my bag because it's so excruciating and time consuming. 
and really hard decision making and really, you know, it, it's again, it's it's the way everybody has behaved for so long that it's normative, right? It's I, I only tell you that you could have done a better job at your annual performance review in December and you could have done a better job like eight months before. It's such a long time since I was in a corporate job that I forget that people are still like that. But I, I met a friend, uh, I met a friend before Christmas and he, and you know, over breakfast, he said, I've just had my review with my boss and he's just told me I've been doing all the wrong stuff for a year. And, it's like, <laughs> and you're like, oh God. He no. said, and he said, he said, I don't even think I've been doing the wrong stuff. He said, I just think that his recollection of our conversation a year ago and mine are different and we haven't spoken about it since. And you just think how, how you know, this is a senior executive in a, in a large organization. Yeah. So, you know, this is sort of my theory. It's like, that's the big obvious one, right? Is like, I tell people the hygiene is that every day or at least every week, find something that you do because you've always done it. Right. And ask yourself, if you started from a blank sheet of paper, would you do that again? You gave the perfect example. If we do it because it's a feedback mechanism and we believe that giving people feedback results in better performance, what else do you do once a year that you're good at? <laughs> I mean, nothing, right? And that's why people are like, well, it's really hard to give people, you know, constructive feedback because I don't know how. It's like, right, because you don't practice. <laughs> you know, and the other thing is, so once a year in reflection, so if it's a feedback mechanism, it's the worst possible thing, right? Because the other thing that it negates is we both know that the best way to get high performance from people is to give them positive feedback in the moment when they're doing something right, <laughs> right? The kids, it's same thing. Great job. Do that again. You go do that this afternoon. If I say, you know, that kind of sucks and I don't tell you what you could do differently, then you're just ignoring me. So giving great feedback is a skill itself, but it's a skill that you practice all the time. Okay. So if that's the job of the annual performance review, that's a really, really bad system. So anybody can think of something better than that. Trust me. Okay. If it is a mechanism for pay, then there's a couple of things about the traditional compensation pay mechanism model that aren't going well. A equal pay, right? It's usually the systems that create that. I just did a group of compensation people and I said, okay, the doors are closed. It's just us. I'm one of you. Go fix equal pay. Write some checks. Whose permission are you waiting for? Your compensation. <laughs> and, and if your system says, when I interview you, how much do you make? And I can't give you more than a you know 9% increase. If you're underpaid, you will always be. Yeah, you can't catch up. The math doesn't work. And, you know, and I'm talking to this group of compensation people. It's like 800 people. And 700 of them are women. Like, you did this to yourself. Crazy. So my theory about pay is that pay is market-based. You're worth what somebody else will pay you. But doesn't that, if females doing the same job are underpaid in the market, the market won't fix it though, will it? The market won't fix it unless you change jobs. Yeah, but even then, would you, if you as an organization believe you could get away with paying a female new hire less than a male hire? You will keep doing it until it doesn't work anymore. Right. And and what you will lose over time is your best ones. Right. Because I was just I, ta I was coaching some startup and they said, yeah, we've I've talked with our CFO and we've decided to pay in the 65th percentile. And I said, OK, can I be one of your employees for a sec? This is a young startup. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, who gets the other 35 percent? She says, well, that's not what percentile means. I'm like, I know that. And you know that. And that would be two of us. And the other 200 people don't have a clue what we're talking about. So, okay. And I guess you're doing that for budget reasons. Yes, I am. I said, okay, but you cannot any longer say we only hire the best people. We only hire A players and hire and pay them in the 65th percentile because A players <laughs> work for the 100th percentile. Do you think they always do? 
No, I don't think. I think if you, I think if you're stuck in a large corporation and that's sort of how you came up, I think you just don't think about it very much. You think, I guess it's fair because they tell me it's fair. But my realistic look at the world as I travel around the world. I mean, here's another story. I'm talking to a group of a thousand CEOs, and I said, "Raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from university." Right? How many hands go up? Zero. I'm like, raise your hand if you think the most important metric for <laughs> for measuring uh, employee human resources is retention. And they all raise their hands. I'm like, does that seem weird to you? <laughs> <laughs> and what? And what's your what's your measure? Is your measure percentage of A players or? No, no, no. It's I I think that we should run businesses measuring the things we run businesses on. The P and L, right? The are you if you're a nonprofit, are you serving your uh, constituents? If you're a for profit company, are you making money? Do your customers love you? Do they return? Do you you know all the metrics of running a great business are in the metrics of running a great business? Profit, revenue, loss, customers, retention of customers, blah blah blah. It's just are you doing great work that people love and they keep coming back and you know using your service. And so I think what happens in some of these really huge corporations is they've got kind of a lock on the on their customers, but even that's changing. We run a lot of companies like we did in 1965. And I had an argument with a reporter once who said, no, 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 it's more like the 80s. I'm like, okay, let's say every four or five decades we change it up. <laughs> you, know, you forget how long ago the 80s were. It's a long time. Okay, so let's say it's the 80s. Every 40-something years, we could probably revisit this. And the thing is, the world moves faster now. And people are more mobile. And the, the divisions between organizations are more fluid now because of the way we work, right? So if you're a bank, your future is probably not in bank buildings. It's probably in mobile apps right? So on your phone, you can bank on your phone. There's no reason for you to go into a bank anymore. And so that let's take that example. That upends the entire way a bank is organized. Now they're regulated and they have a lot of rules and it has to be a precise organization because it's people's money, but they can't have both, right? You can't innovate and move really slowly and do things the way you used to and keep the customers that are in the future because they already know that, you know, they can buy a house on their phone. Why should they go to the bank? So I'm saying that every organization is living in the real world where we have computers in our hand, we move around a lot. And I think that the way we think about work has changed too. We still say it to each other, to employees, you know, join our firm and we'll take care of your career for the rest of your life. We're lying when we say that. And it's been a lie for a really long time. And then employees come in and go, will you take care of me? You know, I'm expecting you to take care of my career for the rest of my life. And they're, they're foolish for having that expectation. So what is it? The average tenure of an employee now is like four years or something like that. And I think that's perfectly wonderful. I think often if you've got a desire to grow and develop and to have a broad base of experience, it's often tough to do that, particularly in small firms. You know, you need to go from one small firm to another because you can take skills with you. You can learn how to do something different. You can. Yeah. And oh, by the way, I think that those folks are very valuable because they have a lot of different perspectives and different ways of doing things. And so, you know, in my perfect world, that's perfectly okay. Right. Especially, especially in a small firm, you know, may, let's say I hire you to do something, build something. And a couple of years later, you've built it and I don't need you to build a new one. <laughs> and, and so I can either say, oh, OK, Dominic, could you just maintain this system that you built? Just, you know, make it smidge better every day. Well, that's not who you are. You're a builder. Totally. Well, I mean, I, my, my first job out of uni was working for a UK retailer called Marks and Spencer. And, and the teams that opened stores was a different team from the teams that ran stores because it was just, it's just a different personality, you know, getting a new location, hiring all the staff, training all the staff, getting the systems up and running, taking the glitches out. Now hand it off to the people who do, you know, customer service yeah. and right. Yeah. 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 And different you know, teams. And 
I have seen it in my career much more, not more profoundly, but certainly profoundly with technology. You know, the Netflix story I tell is when we were a DVD by mail system, we had a data center that kept track of all the information to ship and receive DVDs. When we became a global streaming service, it had to be in the cloud, right? Cloud technology was nascent then, but, you know, it was we were going to be a third of the U.S. internet bandwidth. We couldn't do that in our data center, not in time, right? So it wasn't just that there are different kinds of people. It's a completely different skill set, right? And I talk, when I talk to leaders, I say, look, you must build the team for the future. That's your job. Right? Your job is to put together amazing teams that do incredible work on time that serve the customer. And that's kind of it. I was going to say, it's interesting because I was, oh, blimey, what was I listening to? I was listening to something about your time at Netflix. I don't know whether it was you or Mark Randolph's book, but in it, somebody was saying that at the point where you were making this transition from DVDs to streaming, uh, Reed sort of said to the managers who ran the DVD business, like, you don't come to the management meeting, the, the weekly management meeting anymore, because you guys just keep talking about, well, this is how we make money today. And you can't. And so I was able, I actually took that and, and I had exactly that conversation with a client who's in transition. And every time I sat with them, they started talking, well, yeah, but that's how we make money today. And so it was, it's just fascinating. You know, people are so stuck in, and this is how we do it. We don't want to change. And it's really difficult to unlock unless you have a different team of people and and they get on and yeah and you have to um i learned this over time the fear of change is natural humans often are afraid of change but you know it's also kind of adrenaline so you it's what it takes to do that is bravery it takes stepping off into the unknown and that's not for everybody and it's not for everybody at every stage of their life and so, you know, I think what we're both getting at a little bit here is that this idea that the company is going to take care of you is outmoded and has been for a very long time. And so you own your career, right? If you want to do something different, then do something different, <laughs> right? I remember saying to somebody, okay, you hate your boss and your boss hates you. Let's be clear about that. Now, between the two of you, I think it's a total of, $500,000 in salary, and you're both in your 40s. So go into a room, figure it out. And if not, then work somewhere else. It's okay. Yeah. I remember being in a, Jack Welch was giving a talk and I was in the Q&A afterwards. And somebody put, this lady put her hand up and she said, I work for a family firm. And before she could speak again, Jack said, are you part of the family? She said, no. He went, leave. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and I just thought it's yeah. exactly, there are times when people just, you know, like this problem can't be solved unless somebody leaves. So just somebody leave. Let's get on with it. That's, that's what adults do. That's what adults do. And I think um, I would like it to work both ways. I mean, if I write another book, it's going to be about let's get rid of the word getting fired, right? It's like, there's no weapons. There's not blood. Right? We should be able to say, you know, first of all, thank you, man. You you have done a great job here. The thing is, we don't need you anymore. You're done. <laughs> so, so let's figure out how to how you're going to do something really terrific somewhere else. I was in the audience of a. I'm with sports coaches a lot now. I'm learning a ton from them. But I was in the audience, and the the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. It's a basketball team here in the U.S. And it's a very touchy feely audience. It's probably a diversity and inclusion thing. And this woman says, "Oh." You know, you, you recruit these young men from all over the United States and they come and join your team and they play their hearts out and they win and they win and they win. And at the end of the season, you just cut some of them. Does it break your heart? And he goes, no, it's professional basketball. <laughs> like, and oh, by the way, if they get cut for the rest of their life, they can say they played for the Spurs. And I'm in the audience thinking, why can't we just do this? Why can't we just, you can say this to a 25-year-old guy, but you can't say it to a 40-year-old, <laughs> right? You know, okay, great play. Next season's going to be different. We're going to have a whole different set of competition, blah, blah, blah. Found somebody else. See you later, <laughs> right? And then you should realize as a player that, you know, you're probably not going to be playing center court for the San Antonio Spurs when you're 60. I think if you want, if you want that 
job paying, you know, playing centre court when you're 60, you join the government. You know, you take a job which is sort of tenured, but different if that low risk environment is your thing. It may be. And we'll have to see whether or not that plays out over time, too. Right. Because it's not such a low risk environment in some governments. Um, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. I, I suppose I'm thinking historically rather than, you know, where. Yeah. The other thing I've learned from them and another way I, I like thinking about work is um, creating a great place to be from. If that's your job as a manager, you know, I sometimes say, you know, you want to create an endless series of CV worthy experiences, right? So that you can be clear kind of based on what we talked about earlier on what your objectives are and what you're going to accomplish. And then so that when you're, you have accomplished something as a team, everybody feels like, I'm so proud of this. I'm going to talk about this. You know, this, this will get me my next job wherever it is because I accomplished this. Well, also, if you're trying to build an environment that attracts A players and it's clear that you're, it's not a job for life, then pulling somebody in on a tour of duty to work on a project or to do two or three or four years or whatever it might be with you, if they know that having worked for you on their CV helps them get the, you know, one or two f- rungs further up the ladder, you'll get a queue of people out the door. And so you almost, you know, to your point about, you know, measuring HR on retention, you want people to have left you. Otherwise, you can't create that, that sort of fame as a great place to work. Yeah. And my colleagues at Netflix, you know, a bunch of folks have left and come back. And they have uh, more experience now because they've been somewhere else. And then I want to challenge something you said, which is about A players. My A player might not be your A player. It's about the right people on the team, right? So, you know, we'll use the sports metaphor just because I started it. So the basketball player is not the best rugby player. It's two different sports, right? So, you know, recognizing that what you want to build is a team of A players for whatever it is that you need to do in a particular amount of time. So I have a very distinct methodology for it. I say, you know, look out six months and imagine that your team is amazing. Not just a little better, but amazing. And in six months, and it's very, very important to have time increments because of what we talked about earlier, right? End of the year, end of the summer, six months, what's it look like if this team is amazing? And I say, write down what's occurring then that's not occurring now. Give me all your metrics if you have all your metrics, right? It's more revenue, it's more whatever sales, but make a movie of it, walk around, right? And imagine a day when that team is performing incredibly are there more meetings? Are there less meetings? Is there more documentation? Is there less documentation? Is somebody getting up and going, well, I heard they did something crazy in marketing. I'm going to go ask them why. Instead of going, those people in marketing don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what is that? And then, you know, when I walk through this with people, you can usually close your eyes and imagine that, right? Okay, so in, in, in six months, it's very, very important. Now I say, okay, then say to yourself, what would people need to know how to do in order to accomplish that in six months time? And a lot of times, particularly with young companies, when they hit that magic mark where they're going to make it, the problems shift from problems of difficulty to problems of complexity and scale, right? And the thing about scale is you kind of have to have seen it, (laughs) right? You can't go from one to a hundred X in six months, usually, Okay, so now I know what people need to know how to do. I might need people who are a little more assertive and could get up and talk to marketing, or I might need people who just put their heads down and get to work, right? Now I say, okay, what kind of skills and experience would it take for the team to be able to do this, you know, accomplish this in six months? Then and only then, who do you have? Right. And now say to yourself, knowing that six month accomplishment, I go through team member by team member. If they walked in the door, would I hire them for that team? right? You figure out two things by doing this, sometimes more than that. But one of them is you figure out a way to talk to your team about what's going to happen. And I can say to you, I saw that you kind of froze up (laughs) because I think that what we're going to do next year is not stuff that you're interested in or particularly good at. We probably should spend some time talking about that, right? And then you start defining who you want to add to the team that will help you solve that problem in six months. 
which frees you up to hire lots of different kinds of people. Because instead, what you do when you start with the team you have, I mean, this is simplistic view that I find all the way up the food chain managers do, which is, you know, I need to do twice as much work, I'm going to have to hire a bunch more guys. (laughs) I'll have to hire twice as many people and get twice as much work done. And you know who I'm going to hire? I'm going to hire somebody who's smart, who's quick on their feet, who makes good decisions. I'm going to hire somebody just like me. Then you wonder why nobody could come up with a new idea because you hired all the same people. But I think that your point there about working out where do we need to be in six months time and what, how will we measure success and what will greatness in that role look like? I see very, very few companies doing that. Yeah, well, because we've built all our systems in arrears. Right. What did we do last year? Did you work hard? Did you come to work? Did right? That the how we started this conversation, the reflective annual performance review. Right. I want to flip it all and say, you know, what's our clarity about what we're going to do in the future, and if we don't do it, what stopped us? And what does what does in your in your mind not necessarily what did you do at Netflix, but in your mind what if you junk the annual performance review? What what do you put in place? I tried a lot of different things, but, you know, I tried quarterly 360 reviews and I tried, uh, I have a couple of companies that are mandating one-on-ones. So they say, you know, you have to have a one-on-one with your manager every two weeks and every third one is performance to and from. But I just think when you get it more into uh, teaching people how to get and give feedback, then it just becomes more natural. You have to model it. Leaders have to model it. It just becomes like breathing, right? If you, so for example, it is helpful if I tell you after a meeting, I wish that you had spoken up and complained about that thing that you complained to me about all the time. (laughs) Everybody else would know. But it's also possible that I, in the meeting, I can say, hey, before we adjourn, Dominic, you want to share with everybody what you've been sharing with me? Yes. And it's that, you know, the the person that you say that to might be shocked, but if you do that, that be, just becomes a cultural norm. Yeah. And you, and you say, well, as a matter of fact, I disagree with this decision and here's the reason why. And then I say, well, that's super helpful. Glad you brought it up. Let's talk about that. Then everybody sees that you didn't die <laughs> and life goes on. And so for me, it's, The mechanism, I think it's a good idea to have a formal feedback mechanism, kind of because of what you talked about, about how we all came from an academic background and we all want to know how we're doing kind of formally. And I also think that writing things down is very helpful, but I think we need to teach people how to get and give feedback very practical practical skills, right? So I say, uh, one of the things I used to say at Netflix was, have an opinion, take a stand, and be right most of the time. You have to be right all the time. We make this stuff up. But, you know, and if you're wrong all the time, not such a, but I could care less about what your opinion is, right? Unless you tell me what you think we should do. Another another trick I use is um, when I, an employee says, well, you know, I think management just did a lousy job of this. I, and I think that was a really dumb decision. I'd say, okay, there's two questions. And the second one's more important. One, if you were in management, what decision would you have made? And more importantly, if you're in management, what information would you need to make a good decision? Right? What would you base that decision on? And so if you do that over and over, day in and day out, then somebody's not going to raise their hand and go, I think this sucks. (laughs) They're going to say, I think this sucks because I don't think we took into account this. And I think what we should do is this, right? Because problem solvers are very valuable. Problem finders, not so much. I used to say to people, look, if you bring me a problem and you don't bring me a solution, you're just whinging. And I get, and I, and I get that. I get enough of that at home with the children. So I'm not, I'm not interested in listening to it at work. Yeah, that's right. But it, cause it's dead easy to complain. I mean, you know, that's what, you know, bad news is powerful, but it's also, there's no, um, there's no accountability. You know, if, if you have a culture where people are just whinging and complaining and moaning all the time and that's okay, well, you know, people will just do that. And the people who do want to make a difference will be drowned out in the, in the noise. And so you've got to, you know, you've got to make a stand and get rid of these miserable people. Go be miserable somewhere else. You know, I used to say to people like, you probably want to bring this to someone who cares. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> or or do you, do you have a mom or you know do you have a pet? Because tell your pets they they care about this stuff. They really do. <laughs> and so, what were you? What would you be prepared to uh, have a conversation about? What was what were some of the things that uh, would get your attention if and not get that response from you? Oh, if someone you know really knew that they didn't have the right team. It usually went like this. I would hire a leader from another company and I would, and the first day they would start, I would say, okay, remember your job is to put together an amazing team of people that really get this work done. And you're here because you know how to do it and we don't, right? So that's your job. Go make yourself an amazing team. Then they come in and say, I have a couple of people I want to put on performance improvement plans. And I said, because you know, they're the wrong person. Yes. I'm like, well, their, their performance isn't going to improve. Remember, that's why I brought you here to build a great team. We already know there are people on your team who are the wrong people. We already know that, right? So I can help you figure out how to say goodbye in a respectful way because you don't want them to put them on a performance improvement plan. You want them gone so that you can hire the right people. Let's make that happen. And I just have to teach them how to do it. I, I'm the queen of the good goodbye. <laughs> That's one of the titles I like. And I'm proud of it. I think it's wonderful. And, you know, that that's most often. Or I would be the person in the meeting, at the end of the meeting, who I'd say, um, okay, before we leave, have we made any decisions here? And if so, how are we going to communicate them? Because if we decided that, one of the deals didn't go through with one of the movie studios, like when I was there, right? Well, we're going to, and that's a couple million, X millions of dollars that we're not going to spend this quarter. What we do is say, okay, who can spend it quickly? And what's the most effective use of the money, right? And so what I want, let's say, use that as an example. And we decide that, well, actually, we can increase our direct marketing substantially if we take that money and deploy it right now. And then there's some other stuff that we can do in technology. So we, so what I want to do with that story is I don't want the message to be, finally, we got that money in marketing we've really needed the whole time, right? We teach people about the horse trading, right? And I say, you know, who's going to say what in what order so that we can make sure that our communication is aligned? And the thing about communication is, you know, a lot of times in our heads, we come up with these great things to say and we forget how it's heard. So here's one of my tricks. So when people, um, I have lots of them, when I'm going to, you're going to have that goodbye conversation with somebody and you've got it down, right? I, I know exactly what I'm going to say. I'm like, okay, great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write it down. Bullet points are helpful. And then I want you to call your voicemail and say it. Have that conversation, right? And you know how it is. You, you do this because you podcast, right? Like in your head, you sound so eloquent. As soon as the words come out of your mouth, it's like, oh God, this is so stupid. Right. And I say, keep saying it, keep doing it with your voicemail until you feel comfortable with the words in your mouth. And then, you know, save it and don't don't listen to it for a while, a couple hours and then go back and listen to it as if you're the person you're talking to. Right. Get into their perspective and listen to you say that. And sometimes it's just practice. And yet, well, you know what? It's uh, as I was listening to you describe that trick saying firing people saying goodbye whatever it is that it's just another difficult conversation isn't it and if you've had practice having difficult conversations giving and receiving feedback then you've probably got some muscle that you can use to have these types of conversations with empathy yes and respect right i mean and that's the when i was talking about firing right and you don't use weapons and there's no blood the way we do it elicits the emotion of shame, right? And so I often say, you know, what you want the conversation to end with is something you can tell your grandmother. Here's what happened at work. I don't work there anymore, comma. <laughs> you know, it, it could be comma that asshole, but, um, but it, you'd rather be like, you know, I was kind of done and it was time to move on. And it, Well, it, which is all part of the, it doesn't come as a surprise, you know, that's important. But I, I mean, I've been to the weddings of some of the people that I fired 
And I, sometimes I say that to people and they just look at me with total shock and they just think, you know, maybe there's a better way to do it than they're doing it in your company is what I think when they look at me like that. Well, you know, I'm eight years gone from Netflix. So like half of my, my social life is alum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I used to say, people used to say to me, oh, you know, the culture sounds so brutal and it sounds like, you know, people are screaming at each other all the time. And, you know, I would much rather work in a company where the culture is like family. And I say, you know, I just, the family metaphor doesn't work for me because a lot of people come from dysfunctional families and it's not the same relationship, but that doesn't mean you can't be friends forever, right? I mean, work is something that we do as adults that we can't do anywhere else. And I like the thing in the, in the culture deck, which, which I've used a lot, which is, you know, we're a high, a pro sports team. We're not a kid's you know, we're in the major leagues, not the beer leagues, as somebody said to me. And it's just that, you know, look, if you want to be in the beer leagues, that's fine. Go and play in the beer leagues, right? But, you know, we're, you know, we're a team of talented individuals who want to win the cup. So maybe this isn't for you. It's abs- absolutely fine. Right. And, then, you know, back to the Netflix culture deck, I mean, coming full circle, we didn't write it to say all teams should be like this. We wrote it to say this is what our team looks like. Yeah. If you like it, come join. If you like it, come join. And, I, you know, when I worked there, I won't say half, but a vast, I, there are a lot of people after the interview that I described to you earlier, where I said, you know, I don't think we're the right place for you. I don't know that you'd like it here. And I didn't say it because I didn't think they were talented. I just didn't think they'd like the, the way we operated. Not for everybody. Totally. Patty, what, um, what do you know now that you maybe in a fun way might want to take back if you had a time machine? You know, I get, I get that question a fair amount and I usually would try and come up with a flippy answer. And I was talking to a group of women, uh, young women, uh, girls who tech or something like that. And I said to them, I wish I had known earlier how good I was. You know, because it wasn't until I had the title and the six-figure salary that I thought, you know, now I'm, now I'm there, now I'm good. And I realized, you know, I was a great recruiter at 35. I really was. <laughs> and I just, I wish I had had that confidence then that, that I have now. Was it the organization around you or was it, was it in your head? I think it's partly in my head. I mean, I think the imposter symptom, syndrome is real. And also... I'm a woman and I had, I was always, 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 because I was in tech, you know, in organizations where either I was the only woman or, you know, I mean, I honestly didn't think I was capable at math until I was you know, like 35 years old. And I realized, wait a minute, that's just stupid. Of course I can do this. Huh, there, was a, there was a great thing I was reading that actually said, why is the world full of rubbish male leaders? And what it says is, as human beings, one of the heuristics that we've ended up with evolutionary is that we we mistake confidence for competence. And so men get jobs and women don't. And that, you know, that perpetuates the whole. Oh, my, my friend, that's another entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We won't go down that. We won't go down that rabbit hole then. Right. So, um, uh, what, uh, along the way, are there any books that you've read that have, you know, had a transformative impact on you or books you've read even recently that you thought were great or podcasts that you think we should read or listen to? I like Patrick Lencioni's stuff. I think it's really great. And uh, you you talked earlier about tours of duty. I, I love the idea of tours of duty. The last week, actually, I've been doing some stuff with Ted. Chris Anderson's doing this thing this week where he's doing live They're kind of like podcasts, but it's live conversations that you can dial into, like he's having a TED Talk and you can be part of it. Um, It's a new experiment they're doing. And that's pretty fun. We just did one yesterday where we looked at Bill Gates' 2015 TED Talk on pandemics with like 15 people from around the world. And then we discussed it. So I'm loving the new ways we're sort of combining podcasts and talks with real life conversation because of all the work we're all doing remotely now. So it was like having, getting around and watching something together and then having a conversation about it. That was great. And is that live now on the TED site, that one? 
It is, yes. He's doing he's talking to Bill Gates actually today. I would say the in terms of podcasts, what I love about podcasts these days is doing them. I mean, this is what I always wanted when I when I left Netflix. I thought I'll just do podcasts and interviews and videos. And then I realized, oh, I guess I have to write the book first. <laughs> <laughs> and and you work you work as a consult with a load of a load of startups as well. Yeah, mostly um, speaking these days. So that's you know I started doing that after I wrote my book because it's part of promoting the book. But yeah, it's it's mostly speaking, and then I consult with I will talk to probably any woman CEO around the world just because they need me. <laughs> so I call them my posse, Patty's posse. And as well as the uh, uh, Lencioni stuff, what what other books uh, along the way have you have you picked up, or do you recommend to people? I, I you know I was a Covey devotee back in the day. You know the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and all, you know that stuff that is based on deep leadership research, and it's I think it's really important. Okay. That's brilliant. Patty, that's absolutely brilliant. Are you, and are you, so you carrying on doing the speaking remotely at the moment or is everything you were, you had in your diary for the next three months canceled? Everything's canceled, but probably half of them are coming remotely, right? So I'm doing them instead of a stand in front of people and talk, I'm doing a lot of webinars and podcasts and things like that, which I like, I like doing too. I think it's great. Patty, thank you very much indeed for chatting with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.